I, James Irish, do solemnly swear to not make any references to Monty Python, to that one dead alewives sketch, or to any other of the all-too-rote jokes that come with the Dungeons & Dragons territory. Why not? I do not make any promises for my co-host or guest. <laughs> I'm going to attack the darkness! Yes! It is but a scratch. May God have mercy on our souls. There are too many cartoons, but they'll watch them all. The Penny and James can sort of hopefully funny cartoon podcast. Hello, everyone. I'm James Irish. And I'm Pembroke W. Corgi. Welcome once again to the Pemmy and James Kind of Sort of Hopefully Funny Cartoon Podcast. Joining us once again on the digital couch, please welcome one of my dearest friends, Miss Chrissy Harding. Hi, everyone. Woo! Woo! I'm also joined by my cobalt friend, Bartholomew. I bought a stuffed cobalt the other day, and I love him. Nice. Oh, we're never going to hear the end of this from Keo. <laughs> Keo, I will point. I will post a picture of him. I promise. I, I can't hate on kobolds. Um, that's actually gotten me a few of the best, uh, best money I've gotten on uh, any adoptables I've made of usually been kobolds. Yeah, currently, um, he actually sits right now on top of the chest of dice, which features a lot of the dice that Pemi has bought me for my birthday. So. Ooh. So as you probably gathered, today's subject is the Dungeons and Dragons cartoon that ran from about 1983 to 1987 on CBS under the auspices of Marvel Productions. Yay! I was just going to say, kind of amazing that show even got made, all things considered, at the time. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, we'll talk about that. So let's begin at, well, the beginning. The roots of Dungeons and Dragons are, quite honestly, very deep. The list of influences range from miniature-based wargaming to numerous mythological traditions to the fantasy works of J.R.R. Tolkien and Jack Vance, to name just two of dozens of authors, to even some silly little plastic monster and dinosaur toys that the team, headed up by Gary Gygax, had lying around. You don't believe me about the toys? Look up the origin of the Rust Monster someday. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All of this was slowly but surely distilled into the game whose first edition came out in 1974 by the team's company, TSR, with the name Dungeons & Dragons apparently picked by Gygax's two-year-old daughter. Wow. Yeah, a great, a great deal of the stuff that he actually um, was inspired in the game actually did come from his kids. Even then, the benefits of inviting women to the table were evident, though sadly ignored by many gaming geeks. Yeah, we won't go there just yet. We'll right. do that for our podcast yeah. at some point. <laughs> now, through the 70s, the game slowly but surely started to take off in high schools and college campuses. And by the 1980s, it had become enough of a known quantity that licensors started sniffing around. Thus, in the early to mid part of that decade, we wound up with odds and ends like Dungeons & Dragons color forms, action figures from LJN, video games for PCs, and Mattel's in television, and most pertinent to this podcast, the aforementioned cartoon. By Marvel Productions. Mm -hmm. 
And it's very interesting for D and D. The and this is the, this was the thing that um, the only thing you really need to play D and D was the player's guide, a pencil, dice, and a re- just your imagination. And that's one of the things that makes it so enduring to this day. No matter how much Hasbro tries to monopolize it or monetize it. I'm looking at you, Hasbro. I feel like Hasbro takes that one line from the Transformers movie a little too serious. The the uh, line, until all are one. Yeah, there, there's a lot to it. And if anyone wants a really good breakdown of what's going on, I, I recommend the many different... Uh, actually, just go to the D&D um, Reddit, the subreddit on Reddit, because a lot of the players there... And it's not actually as toxic as a lot of people think it is. They actually do will break down some of the things going on right now in D&D, and they're really helpful for new players to it and answering questions. Plus... You want to have people fangirl, just mention the cartoon on there. And like, there's like thousands of threads about people fan fanboying and fangirling over this cartoon. Now, the prolific Mark Evanier would serve as the principal developer of the show's premise and one of the main writers. Now, Mark is probably better known to comic fans as the creator of Gru the Wanderer. And he's one of the key figures in the history of future podcast subject Garfield and Friends. It's on the list. Yep. <laughs> In fact, it's arguable that Mark's experience on this show would lead to some of the more pointed commentaries he put into the Garfield and Friends cartoons. I'll get into that a little later on, but it is coming, so just hang tight for a bit on that point. I guess. (laughs) This being Saturday morning, though, the Dungeons & Dragons premise is given a more kid-friendly veneer. We actually get the uh, bare bones of the story in the introduction of every episode, with a small group of friends getting on an amusement park ride themed to the game. Turns out the ride is enchanted specifically to send these exact six youngsters into the world of Dungeons & Dragons. That is one amazing ride. (laughs) I know. After watching that, like, literally, um, remember, we have a a theme park up here called Seabreeze, and they used to have... It was um, the Haunted House. Remember the Haunted House, James, at Seabreeze? Um, I never wrote it. Oh, I I remember it existing, but I never wrote it. I wrote it once, and I'm like, so does this mean I get to go? I used to think that if I wrote it, I would end up actually in a haunted realm, that I could go on these adventures growing up. It didn't happen, and that was vastly disappointing to me. (laughs) You know, if they made this show modern day, they'd probably just explain it all as being a VR trip or something. Oh God, it was a dream. That was that's my most hated trope in any any TV show, is it's it was just a dream. I hate that ninety five percent of the time. The only exceptions I'll give is the one Batman the animated series episode and the one episode of Futurama. Perchance yeah. to dream, yeah, that was yeah. they did it really good in that one. I have to give them credit for that. Oh, and the Bob and the, the finale of the second Bob Newhart show. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that one I would give it to because that actually was a really good. That was really good how they did it for that one. And, and the episode of Futurama, the Sting, where uh, Lilo gets put in a coma. That one's actually really good too. So. Oh, that was good. Yeah, but every other time it's like cop out. Yeah. <laughs> it, I, I don't mind it when they make the whole thing part of the story rather than than just copping out. Because yeah. you, you actually feel the dream aspects in that Batman and Futurama episode, so it makes sense that that's the resolution. Yeah, if you can, if it's if it's part of it where you know something's not right, like as you know throughout the whole those two episodes, something's not right here. And speaking of dreams, keeping you two on topic, folks, <laughs> welcome to my nightmare. 
<laughs> it's not living the dream. It's surviving the nightmare at this point. Anyhow, I don't believe the specific fantasy realm these kids wind up in is named. It's simply called The Realm, according to what quick research I did. And given the diversity of biomes they encounter in their adventures, it honestly hardly matters. Yeah, I think that according to a lot of people, um, and then what I, research I actually did on it, the closest anyone thinks it could be is the world of Greyhawk because because uh, of Tiamat being in it. And I'll get more into that when we talk a little bit more about Tiamat and her history. But I think, I personally, someone also said they think that they're just traveling the multiverse of Dungeons and Dragons. Because even back then, there was a multiverse to Dungeons and Dragons. It might just period. be a patchwork of various D&D worlds, too. It could be, which is true, too. I mean, the Dungeon Master, once once you really get to know him, he really, he's very powerful. So I would not be surprised if he keeps zapping them to different planes within the world of D&D. So they do encounter Dungeon Master when they get there, who gives each of them a role to enact for their own protection as they try and figure out their way home. And the DM is voiced by veteran actor, songwriter, and director Sidney Miller, who performed alongside Mickey Rooney and Jack Benny and directed episodes of programs as diverse as The Mickey Mouse Club, The Addams Family, Get Smart, and pertinent to this podcast, Hanna-Barbera's Skatebirds. I love Get Smart. That was one of my favorite shows growing up. Would you believe he directed five episodes? Three episodes? One episode in the pilot. Sorry. (laughs) How about a commercial break? (laughs) So our six kids are led by Hank the Ranger, stalwart and bland with his enchanted bow, and voiced by former child actor Willie Ames, best known for his tenure on Eight is Enough, and as the first performer of the title character, of direct-to-video religious superhero franchise, Bible Man. Yeah, we're done with that. I will give Hank some credit. He does get a pretty good amount of development in the second episode we watched today. He does, actually. But pertinent to our podcast, he had previously voiced James Boyle in Hanna-Barbera's primetime animated sitcom, Wait Till Your Father Gets Home. That'll be an interesting show to talk about at some point. Oh, for sure. Probably on the list for 2024. Okay. I was about to say, is that one on the list? Because I don't remember hearing it on the list episode. Yeah, the the list is is malleable. Mm. Now, the brave acrobat Diana, inspiring in both words and deed, with and without her enchanted javelin staff, is performed by Tonya Gale-Smith. This would be her only reoccurring role, according to Internet Movie Database, with her lone other credit being a one-off appearance on the sitcom The Facts of Life. That's kind of a pity. She does a really good job in this. She's amazing as Diana. Like she, she really, and and in the two episodes that we do see her in, in here, she, she's really good. Like she, she, you could tell she's the heart of the team. Yeah. I, she's the one I, the only one I've gotten a figure of now that they're releasing cartoon figures. Next in the proverbial batting order is Presto the Magician, performed by Willie Ames's former Eight is Enough co-star, Adam Rich. Now, Presto's spells don't always go according to plan, which is a classic cartoon magic trope, if there ever was one. Yeah. We've also got Sheila the Thief, aided by her magic cloak in acts of stealth and daring. 
performed by now veteran voice actress Katie Lee, whose most famous roles to date include Sunny Gummy in Disney's Adventures of the Gummy Bears, Baby Rolf on Muppet Babies, Fizzy on My Little Pony, and Alex in the first two seasons of Totally Spies. Talk about an enviable CV. Also, interesting fact of that's kind of random, the video game Buster Brothers 2, or Buster Buddies, or Pang 3, whatever you want to call it, actually has a character in it named Sheila the Thief that's absolutely not related to this character in the slightest. <laughs> Must have been a nice Easter egg for for the person who made it. They might have watched the cartoon. Either that or just a random coincidence. Regardless, amusing. Fair enough. And Sheila's kid brother, the impulsive Bobby the Barbarian, is voiced by Teddy Field III, whose brief acting career also saw him as Tex in Saturday Supercade's Frogger segments. And you have to talk about Bobby's Bobby's uh, co-companion that he picks up, yep. Uni. Yep. Uni the Unicorn, who was performed by Frank Welker, uh, obviously a podcast favorite. Because of course it's Frank Welker. Because yeah, yeah, I was about to say, of course it's Frank Welker. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I, I do have to get one joke out of the way real quick, since we've already mentioned both of their names. I, I can't get over the fact that we have the ranger's name is Hank, and the barbarian's name is Bobby. So I, I can't not see Hank going, that barbarian ain't right. <laughs> you know, it's kind of fair, because there is... Um... Bobby Bobby has a tendency not to not get in trouble. And you just kind of sit there like, Bobby, no. Rounding out the kids is Eric the Cavalier, voiced by Don Most, a.k.a. Happy Days' Ralph Mouth, who I saved for last in this overview of the six kids for a reason. Spoiled rotten by his rich background, Cavalier slash Eric is the group's complainer. And in this era where parent groups, network censors, and other moral guardians were watching darn near everything kids' TV was doing with a microscope that even Perceptor would envy, a great many shows of this era would adopt the pro-social conceit that the complainer is always wrong and should just go along with the group. You can hear it right in the core concept of contemporary show The Get Along Gang, for crying out loud. And you'd see it in the portrayals of characters like Brainy Smurf and Wheeler from Captain Planet. Now, according to one of the other writers, Eric was actually intended to be right more often than he was wrong. But those same outside forces I alluded to frustratingly forced the creative team's hands a good deal in the first season. It got better in the second season. But matters with moral guardians didn't begin and end there. Yeah, unfortunately, this this cartoon came out in a very bad time period for D and D, and maybe it's one of the reasons why it did come out was to try to make to show that D and D was very family friendly. Uh, the other problem is, and if anyone who knows their time period, you would know that this was probably the beginning or toward in the middle of the Satanic Panic. You see, Dungeons and Dragons property as a whole was the center of the latest. New media is the devil's handiwork mania in the 1980s. We'd see this thing afflict rock and roll and jazz and on and on, but it, it seemed to be particularly bad here. The fervor to which teens and college kids got into the game led to critics claiming that it encouraged escaping into fantasy as opposed to dealing with reality. 
and encounters in the game with demons, zombies, and <gasps> pagan gods like Loki, Osiris, and Vishnu in these fantastical playtimes were not winning the game friends with the religious right. The countermania even spawned the very critical film Mazes and Monsters, a movie that I'm sure its star Tom Hanks would rather forget. Yeah, at the time he did say he only took it for the money. Everybody got to start somewhere. Exactly. Yeah, at the time, and and here's the thing um, for people to understand: at the time, there are three. There were three big things that happened at the time. At the time before this, yes, at this time, Dungeons and Dragons did become very popular. But there were three cases, actually two cases, and one dumbass. <laughs> Sorry, one dumb guy, artist at the time who were really pushing for this. So I'm going to talk a little bit about these three cases. Uh, the first case was a missing persons case um, known as the James Dallas Egbert III case. And in 1979, 16-year-old James Dallas, he was actually a certified genius. Uh, this kid actually ended up going to college in Michigan Gate in State at age 16. He disappeared. And he had a private investigator by the name of William Deere, who, if anyone actually looks into William Deere, he is quite a sensationalist. He likes to think he's the, he was the new Sherlock Holmes to find him. Uh, the private investigator actually, while looking for him, told his parents that he wasn't killed. He was just caught up in playing D&D &D in college, and that's what made him disappear. What they don't tell you was he actually suffered from a lot of mental illness issues and drug addiction because of all of the pressure put on him at 16 to be a genius and to succeed. And he just broke. Wow. You know? So when they finally found him, they actually found him in the utility tunnels under the school. So D&D had absolutely nothing to do with this. This was just a kid who had a mental breakdown because of all the pressures from the school, from his parents, just from everyone in general. He was a 16-year-old genius, and he was expected to be the next Albert Einstein. And as a side note, if any of you have read the popular D&D-themed comic, Knights of the Dinner Table... This is where the whole steam tunnels sub-motif has come from. Yeah. He ultimately did take his life a year later, like when they found him and forced him back into his parents without treatment. Um, and his parents were pushing. The, the belief is, I don't know what his parents did, but his parents were trying to push him back into the school. Um, he did eventually take his own life. <laughs> so as a result of his untimely death, people blamed it on D&D, &D, including William Deere, who wrote a book called The Dungeon Master. And he actually writes in the book how he tried D&D &D and he got so swept up into it that when his character died, he felt that he himself had to die too. Wow. And, he, and that book was very popular. It was a bestseller. So when I say William Deere, you know, he played that D&D &D angle on that case and he wrote his own book on the subject and that was published in 1984. Author Rona Jafe wrote a book that um, you talked about that movie with Tom Hanks. It's called Maze and Monsters and that's also based on the Egbert case as well. The other case was the pulling case. Um, and this is actually the first real campaign against D&D. &D. And this was started by Patricia Polling. And that's because her son, who was a high school student who had trouble fitting in, he also took his own life. And his mother 
decided instead of looking into her son's mental health issues, blamed D&D. And she sued TSR and her son's principal, who she claimed placed a curse on her son for the game. So the, the, the principal to help these kids kind of learn how to work together and use D&D as like a social, like learning how to social skills and how to work as a team and create building and create bonds, which is what you do in D&D. As the dungeon master, as the storyteller, he ended up in a battle. His The son's character had a curse placed on him. Well, she believed that the principal really placed a curse on her son. So she created a campaign called Bothered by D&D, also known as Bad. She lost in court, but she began uh, going on TV and telling people how this game promotes demonology, witchcraft, murder, satanic rituals, and demon summoning. She eventually even got into a discussion with Gary Gygus, and she claimed she was an expert on D&D and the evil of D&D, and she got a lot of traction. Enough, and this is where... Chick tracks come in. If you've never heard of chick tracks, oh lord, here it oh. comes. Chick tracks, written by John Chicks, actually created so many cartoons, so many cartoons, and I'm not talking cartoons as in animated, but cartoons as in little comics, denouncing D and D and claiming that D and D people got so caught up in D and D that if their character dies, that they would die too, and D and D gripped you into the world of fantasy, and blah 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 blah. So you can see where this was, and it actually spread rumors that D and D was so addicting that people believed it was their lives. And if you want a really good video about chick tracks and how crazy trick chick tracks are, there's a YouTube thing of YouTube channel called Fundy Fridays, and she goes deep into this. Jen does. On there, she also go, talks about the satanic panic also as well. Um, so I recommend if you want more information on that, that's a good place to start for information. And she puts all of her sources in the description so you can read up more on it. So yeah, that's what TSR had to deal with <laughs> at the time that this cartoon came out. So critics riding the wave of the religious right, who at the time were starting to get pow- starting to get traction with parents. Oh, and I would like to tell you that when I started getting into D&D, my mother was on this train. Yikes. Yeesh. While these yeah. attitudes are not as prevalent as they once were, fans of fantasy gaming still encounter them. In the late 90s, my high school had concerns about such themes in the collectible card game Magic the Gathering, and my cousin Shawn Michael Smith, in addition to having to deal with bans on both D&D and Magic the Gathering at his one of the colleges he attended, they even went so far as to tell him he had to take down a Nightmare Before Christmas poster. I, I'm not going to ask what school that was, but I'm going to take a guess. Was that Naz? Nope. Roberts Wesleyan. That would have been my second guess, actually, but that because but that's that, it's so funny because I went to Niagara, and Niagara was like, "What are you guys doing? We're playing D and D." They're like, "Okay, just don't do anything stupid." Like it was literally the priests were like, "Oh, okay, have fun." Like like they're like, "Just don't do anything dumb." Like, "Oh, okay, as long as you're not drinking, we're good." <laughs> All of this, of course, extended to the cartoon. With the National Coalition on Television Violence unsuccessfully petitioning the FTC to put up a warning in front of the show stating that D&D was linked to real-life deaths, i.e. the ones Chrissy just told us about. Yeah, but they weren't. Like, these were mental health issues. The problem is so many kids were playing D&D at the time, 
Oh, D&D was going to pop up as part, as something they were playing, but it's no different than saying, you know, it's no different than video games. Just because somebody shoots someone, they, okay, they're playing a video game. It doesn't mean the video game caused them to shoot that person. Yeah, it's basically, it's what always happens. It's like, it, rather than accepting what the real problem is, people just want to find an excuse. And like I said, video games is like one that's very popular also is just like violent video games equal violent people. No, no, not really. And look at comic books in the fifties. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's just because it's there doesn't mean that that's causing it. And, and that's the thing. Um, a lot of these kids who, yes, they do get into D and D cause they're lonely. But the thing with is, is that these role-playing games, especially D and D, they create a sense of community among people because you're working together as a team, which is one of the core themes of the cartoon. You're working together as a team to solve a problem. Would you not want to teach your kids how to problem solve using the skills in front of you? Yes, it's fantasy, but you're doing it in a safe spot. And I think one of the favorite, one of the things I was talking with. Randy, who's the who's my dungeon, who's my DM on Saturdays, and he said he goes, my mom had no problem with it because as far as she was concerned, she knew where we were and we weren't drinking and driving. <laughs> now, to be sure, there was one thing that parent groups might have been concerned with in this cartoon for legitimacy. There were some terrifying images in this series compared to well, the Smurfs and the Get Along Gang. And even contemporary fantasy action show, He-Man and the Masters of the Universe, came off tame compared to some portions of this. And that serves as one of the reasons Pemmy picked the second episode we'll be checking out today. Uh, it's a little late, but can I say something about Eric and the complainer role? Yeah. yeah. Weirdly, I, as a kid, always liked the complainer character, despite the fact that they weren't the, uh, you know, they're obviously the character you're supposed to not like. Because I, I kind of felt like they were pointing out the things I felt like everybody else should be, like, acknowledging and aren't. Like, like they'll complain about something, and I'm like, that's a legitimate complaint, you know? <laughs> yeah, like, he's not wrong. And that's the thing. Like, we all are like, oh, my God, stop bitching. But at the same time, like, and, and we'll come across in, IAB, in the first episode that we were looking at today. Like, you sit there and you're like, he's not wrong. Yeah. Also, another cool thing, um, I know we'll probably get to the get to it, but, um, and you just let me know if you want me to talk about it, is, like, what edition of D&D this is based on, you know, because the classes that we talked about, they're not in the original edition of D&D, some of the, two of the classes. They actually come yeah. out in a later edition. I know the Thief was a later edition. No, Thief is actually in the original one. Faith is actually oh. in the first edition of D and D. Oh, I, I must have I must have gotten my timelines crossed then, because I, yeah, I recall he, Gary Gygax uh, relating that the thief was a player creation he incorporated. Yeah, he he incorporated it, but it was it was it's still in quote unquote the first edition. It's it's just he, it was just an, a supplement to the first edition. But by 1983, it was considered part of first edition D and D. Anywho. Yeah. Let's see. I just want to say one more thing about Eric. Yeah, <laughs> and then I, I'm actually interested in the addition thing. But uh, yeah. for for a guy that you're supposed to hate in this, he actually legitimately saves everybody in the intro. You're right. He does actually. Because he he reflects uh, Avengers shot and causes it to hit Tiamat, which uh, 
you know, has Tiamat attack uh, Avenger. Also, holy heck, first thing they see when they come to their wor- this realm is Tiamat? That's like the worst starting tech campaign ever. And I don't even play D&D. <laughs> Frank Welker, in addition to Uni, is also the voice of Tiamat. Chrissy, give us the 10 cent description of this uh, beastie. So Tiamat is, as anyone who's ever played D&D, um, actually is and is very well known as the queen of the dragon queen. Uh, she's one of two of the ancient gods. Tiamat in AD&D. So the edition that this cartoon is based on is actually Advanced D&D 1, which came after the first edition. Um, an unearthed arcana by Gary Gygax. Um, which introduces the two classes of Acrobat and Cavalier. So those are the two new classes that were introduced. So those are the two classes in the in the cartoon that are not part of first edition. The rest of the classes technically are in first edition and its supplements. If anyone knows anything about D&D, they love their supplements. Tiamat was actually not named in the first edition of D&D. She was only known as the Queen Dragon or the Chromatic Dragon. She's actually named in the Monster Manual for Advanced D&D. So Tiamat was actually very newly named when the cartoon came out. Now rounding out our core voice cast, Peter Cullen, who we spent a lot of time with in our last episode on the Transformers, is the main villain, Venger. And Bob Holt, the voice of characters ranging from the Lorax to the Great Grape Ape, performs Venger's lieutenant, Shadow Demon. (laughs) <laughs> it does feel it does feel weird going from hearing Peter Cullen playing the heroic Optimus Prime to the villainous Vinger in two podcasts. I know, but that does so much about his range. But like, I love Peter Cullen. Oh, Peter Cullen's great. I know. I would love to meet him. We've spent a good deal of time, so we'll we'll fill in the rest of the, of whatever details we have as we go into these episodes. So let's get roll for initiative and start with the episode. The Eye of the Beholder. I got an 18. (laughs) Now, as a quick preface to this episode, the Beholder is one of D&D's most iconic original creations. The team didn't derive it from myth, fiction, or random toys. It just kind of came to them. Hence, an appearance of such a creature, I figured, would make for a good means of determining how the team behind the cartoon were able to adapt these esoteric things that landed in their lap. Interestingly, like I, I told you off camera, I was at Walmart today and literally saw a Dungeons and Dragons coloring book with the Beholder right on the freaking front of it. <laughs> you know, is it bad that in the cards? And I'll say this now, even though I'm jumping ahead. Like when the Beholder actually really shows up, I actually paused the cartoon to count the eyes on it to make sure it wasn't a spect a spectator. <laughs> you weren't the only one counting the eye stalks, right, Femi? Nope. I was in there, I'm like, okay, how many do we have here? Is this really a beholder, or did they jinx, or did they, or did they short me? And I was counting them. If anything, actually, they gave us one too many. They did. I was like, ooh, you guys went out for overkill. Also, did anyone else try to? Na- I decided that because I like to name things. I actually ended up naming the beholder. <laughs> so, I the beholder was written by Hank Seroyan. I'm not even sure how you pronounce his last name with contributions from Mark Evanier and Kimmer Ringwald. It is not to be confused with the episodes of the Star Trek animated series, or the episode of He-Man, or the episode of Brave Star of the same name. Filmation apparently really liked that title. Sounds well, artsy. It, well, yeah, it's, you know, it, Beauty is in the Eye of the Beholder, which 
We'll get to. So we open the episode with the party sweltering under the heat of four suns. Apparently, they're trying to outdo Tatooine by two. <laughs> while something is throwing sand at Uni. Now, my first thoughts. This is Frank's voice for Slimer that he's giving this unicorn. And now I'll never be able to get this cross-reference out of my head. Well, he's doing a lot less of the, like, blubbering sound that he does with Slimer. But yeah, it's very similar. I would love to. While Frank Rolker's alive, who would not want to see a cartoon with all of the characters that he plays just meeting together for lunch? (laughs) So Cavalier goes into a story about a safari in his backyard where he just called his dad to bring the gardener to grab him. A lot of help there, buddy. <laughs> Did anyone else while they were hearing the story and he says, I just called my dad and it's just like, what? And I'm like, cell phones existed back then. What? <laughs> Apparently he had a walkie talkie. Either that or he had one of those giant 80s cell phones. My dad had one of those, but he had it just because he was the fire he was the fire chief. I mean, he, Eric is rich. So as Uni digs a hole to figure out what was pestering him or potentially hide, Ranger and Cavalier argue about Dungeon Master's orders to follow the setting suns. Seems the DM hasn't been attending his session with the party for the last couple days, and Cavalier is getting annoyed. To be fair, I would be too. Yeah. But when pressed on what he'd do, he's interrupted by the panicked uni retreating into his arms from a massive scorpion. To be fair, I would also run from that as well. Yeah. I'd run from a normal scorpion, let alone a giant scorpion. And Sheila, of course, insists they run. So they run. And along comes a pompous-sounding knight with a fancy mustache, a considerable pot belly, and another Frank Welker voice. This one's sounding like Sir Frederick of Jones, if you catch my meaning. (laughs) I I honestly wish that really was his name because that would have been hysterical. It really, that would have been great. I wouldn't say he was more pompous as he, as he just sounded more, you know how like some people like you want to say they're pompous, but they're just trying to like talk themselves up a little bit. Mm -hmm. Like, like he's just like, okay, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? What am I going to do? (laughs) <laughs> he's trying to sound noble. Yeah, he's trying to sound noble, not so much pompous. He's like he's like he's trying to he's trying to make himself sound like he's doing the right thing. But he hears the chase and he hides out of sight. When he reemerges, there's a blue dragon right behind him. I swear, I wrote an opening gag about not making Monty Python references at a discussion about D and D, since they're so rote after all these years, and now this falls into my lap. It's like they say, you try and quit cold turkey, suddenly cold turkeys are everywhere. Gobble gobble. (laughs) Don't make promises you can't keep. That's why I don't make promises like that. It's Monty Python. How can you not make the Monty Python's reference? So the kids duck into a crevasse that the scorpion can't follow them into, only for the alleged knight to become the big bug's new potential breakfast. Now the scorpion and the dragon are battling, and the blue dragon breathes lightning. Point for accuracy. To be to be honest, I swear to God, I I want to say, I feel like the cartoon people knew even back then that if they didn't get it right, there would be thousands of D and D nerds marching on them. Well, if anybody was going to be that organized, it would have been the D and D nerds. Fair enough. Remember, these are people who do organize campaigns for fun. So these beasties take their business elsewhere. 
and the kids emerged to find Uni smiling at the knight. They never saw the dragon, so their assumption is the knight saved them. Well, all the members of the singing group, the blind boys of Alabama, can see where this plot is headed now. <laughs> oh, pretty boy. standard cartoon hijinks. I had to reference uh, a classic R&B slash gospel group from Uncle Mike, who is one of our most loyal listeners. Hi, Uncle, Hi, Uncle Mike. Mike. Hi, Uncle Mike. So the knight realizes what's happening and plays into it. And we get a bad night school joke from Cavalier. And as the knight leaves, he introduces himself as Sir John, protector of the village Pindrake, and battler of beasts, dragons, and demons. <laughs> and scorpions, as Bobby adds. Right. Yep. Now Cavalier slash Eric is concerned about the knight's line about no telling what they'll run into when Dungeon Master pops out of the background. <laughs> After a joke about him not always needing to come up behind Eric, he explains he's found a potential way for them to get home. In the Valley of the Beholder to the east, a passage to their home exists. And we get our first look at the Beholder in the cartoon, and it looks good! Despite there being one or too many eye stalks. I, I do want to say I do like that bit with the Cavalier and the, and the Dungeon Master, because it's just like, do you always have to do that? No, not always. <laughs> I know, I love, the Dungeon Master Just is just so, like, no, but it's fun now. Yeah, I, I like how playful he is, for lack of better words. Now, while Chrissy and I were counting eye stocks, I'm not going to keep track of how many there are from scene to scene. Oh, I'm no. a stickler, but I'm not interested in torturing myself. Oh, no, I just wanted to count and just, like, all right, did, did they give us a beholder or did they give us a spectator? Because they look very similar but they're very different. And it was a true blue beholder, even if it was one too many. And if it ain't one too many, I'm okay with. Now, Dungeon Master has one last parting bit of advice. By looking back, you can sometimes get a clearer view of what's ahead. And only beauty can beat the eye of the beholder. Eric is not impressed or pleased with either this advice or the Dungeon Master's disappearing once more. I don't think he paid for the pizza for the session. No, no. he did not. <laughs> Again, I, I'll i defend Eric. I, I would find that pretty freaking annoying, too. But you also, but part of me is like, Eric, you know this is what's going to happen by now. You know. Like, this has been going on for how many times, and you haven't picked this up by now. Like, instead of being... So Bobby takes this advice quite literally, looking back where they were before and only seeing where they met Sir John. And Hank takes this as the meaning of the clue and believes Sir John can help them against the Beholder. Presto agrees that if Sir John can handle the Scorpion, he can definitely handle the Beholder. Um... Yeah, I don't think those are on the same level, buddy. <laughs> yeah, this kid's in for a rude awakening. But even Eric agrees with the plan and concept. So they head to Pindrake via a great mushroom forest. All I can say is, is um, I don't... My only issue with the Dungeon Master on this one is he doesn't explain to them what exactly a Beholder is. He showed them. He yeah. showed them, but didn't explain to them what that was. Beyond a creature from the underworld. Yeah, like, I would be like... That's not nearly enough. I mean, technically, a little itty-bitty imp is a creature from the underworld, and there's a vast gap of difference. Exactly. Like, technically, Tiamat 
is considered a creature of the underworld in 5e because that's where she lived. She lives in the abyss. Like she is banished to the abyss. So technically Tiamat is considered a creature from the underworld. Like I have questions. I would be like, I have some questions. Like it has all those eyes. What do the eyes do? Like, can we talk? I need some clarification. In the town of Pendrake, the town mayor, also voiced by Frank Welker, is practically reading Sir John the Riot Act, firing him from his duties, and intending to replace him with a cheap, renewable heat source. I mean, a braver knight. <laughs> Sorry, if I can't re- reference Monty Python, I'm going to at least reference Sam and Max, darn it. See, the only person stopping you from referencing Monty Python is you. I just wanted to point out that no one's mentioning the fact that Frank Welker literally fired himself in this scene. Yes! <laughs> yeah, like, it's almost kind of like, you sit there and as you're thinking about it, and you're just like, did you just fire yourself? Is this what happens when you're self-employed? Now, Sir John's son, Timothy... Wait. John. Tim. John Cleese. Tim the Enchanter. Yep. It's like they're putting them right in front of me just to annoy me. Yes, they are. It's big and huge and it's got massive fangs. It's just a model. (laughs) Timothy exposits for the audience that they're running out of towns to serve. And the knight begs for one last chance. And he gets it. He has to perform one deed of genuine bravery to keep his post putting him pretty much in the path of needing the main group of kids as much as they need him. Yay. Ronaquist. Ronaquist. <laughs> they should have just named him Sir Robin at, Robin at this point. Brave, brave <laughs> Sir Robin. So the party is still wandering through that stage of centipede, since clearly Marvel beat Ruby Spears to the rights to that game, <laughs> as they're being tailed by ominous, shadowy creatures with glowing red eyes. I believe this is fantasy cartoon cliche number 57, or was it 56? Uh, I think it's 55. 69, dude! Do not invoke that number, Pemmy. I think 57 is the the terror chord of when you have to, in in the panning in out of the camera when someone's up on a high, high cliff and they look down. I think that's cliche 57. Okay. Oh, well. Moving along, Sheila suggests that Presto cast a light spell. Piece of cake, says Presto, and he pulls a cake out of his pointy hat. Funny enough, the light from the candles on the cake are sufficient to keep these giant snail-like critters at bay until Bobby sneezes the candle out. He should have made a wish first. That barbarian ain't right. No, he's not. Am I being too snarky? Or not snarky enough? It's hard to gauge sometimes. No, I think you're at the right level of snark for this. Could be a little more, might be a little less, but you're just like right there. So Hank resorts to using his magic arrows to create some fireworks, which works for all too brief of a moment as the snail things start using tendrils from their antennae to rope the party in and put them in sacks. Even by the standards of a typical D&D campaign, this feels a smidge odd. What can you say? The kids got sacked. <laughs> Sadly enough, I these characters actually these characters are in the monster manual of eight of advanced D and D. No kidding. I, I, 
I forgot what their names are, but the, that is an actual thing that they do. I'm sure when they put this in the script, they're like, well, it's in the bag. Yeah. <laughs> so point two for accuracy. <laughs> Even so, I'll, I can still go with it a lot more easily than some of the other leaps of cartoon logic set in real world style settings that we've seen since, hey, this is fantasy. Hey, so, we, hey it's D&D. The DM's in charge. So the kids are captured one by one with Presto's spell to banish the snails from his sight, just putting a bucket over his head. <laughs> I am Jorge. I make this backle. <laughs> I can't be wrong. I mean, it did work, technically. Yeah. Technically worked. I just had to talk about Bruno. You don't talk about Bruno. But it's fun talking about Bruno. Anyhow, Diana's attempt to clear the canopy to let the sun in is also thwarted. Only Uni is able to escape thanks to Tendril Crossfire as the snails cart their ill-gotten captives away over their slimy shoulders. I might want to add that there seem to be more snails holding sacks than there were captives, but it's a minor thing. Who knows what else they caught anyway? This is Tendril fair. Crossfire is such a weird term. <laughs> I know, and as, as I was hearing it, I'm just like... At least this is not an anime. At least this is not an anime. Well, what That's else exactly would you call I it? <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know what else you would call it, but I'm like, thank God this is not an anime. This could go in so much worse of directions. So back from commercial break, there's more basic humor from the party as Sir John enters the scene and stammers about his having to do something brave. I do want to give the animation team credit for the shading effects through this whole sequence of the forest, by the way. Yeah, they do a good job ignoring that one scene where they forgot to finish drawing Diana's legs. So Uni pounces on the coward, scaring him and knocking the torch out of his hand. When Sir John asks where the party is, Uni tugs at his cape to get him to help, but Sir John can't see the forest for the mushrooms. This he is can't fair. help since he has to perform a brave deed, little realizing helping the kids would be one heck of a start at minimum. We didn't say he was the smartest character. No, but right. he's not being tasked with being smart, just brave. Fair yeah. enough. I, I it, like to I like to say his uh, intelligence stat is probably a seven. Up there, which is probably his bravery stat is probably less, but still. Do we tell him, Chrissy? You can. Technically, there's no bravery stat. I, I figured as much. So, Uni, remembering the snail's weakness, grabs the torch and runs off to do it herself. Go, little gal, go! Let me tell you something. Uni, Uni is like, is like the best, is the, is the bestest girl. Uni is the bestest girl. She's the goodest girl. I, I keep getting tempted to buy the uh, figure of Bobby when I say that st stores because Bobby actually comes with Uni, which actually weirdly makes the $25 price tag feel more, more worth it compared to the majority of them. This is fair. Well, you get two for the price of one. Yep. Naturally, Sir John follows the baby unicorn protesting. Now, my hopes were a little bit dashed when Uni drops the torch for Sir John to pick up, wave it around in a panic as he spots the snail beasts, and winds up getting the credit from the kids. If I were Uni, I'd be fuming right about now. Uni evolves into Rapid Dash. Wait. <laughs> hey. I would be, I, listen, if I was Uni, I would be like, I'm done with this shit. <laughs> but she does get her point across because she starts siding with Eric. 
So Diane even hands him a flower as a token of their gratitude and gives the bumbler a kiss on the forehead. That's Yoni's kiss, damn it! <laughs> that, would be if you, I mean, that would be if Yoni wants to kiss, though. Remember? Consent. True. So the kids explain the situation, uh, sort of, and Sir John wants none of it. But the kids insist he's the bravest man they've yet met. Yuni aptly demonstrates she's wise to the knight's actual deal. I like this sidekick. Despite the Slimer voice? Yes, despite the Slimer voice. And to Sir John's credit, he, while he was right waving it around in a panic and he wouldn't have been there without Uni, he did still technically drive them off. Technically. Technically. So Sir John is roped into doing it as opposed to being tendrilled into doing it. And even his insisting he needs to get his shield won't get him out of it since Hank suggests Presto make him a shield. The magic hat spits out a garbage can lid, which is all too apropos. Indeed it is. Indeed it is. Though admittedly, Sir John is garbage. <laughs> well, admittedly, it's when Sir John hears it might be their only way home that he starts to come around for a moment. Sir John's courage lasts until they get into the Beholder's domain, and the knight starts calling for it like one would a stray dog. Hank asks what the plan is, and Sir John says they should think of one while he scouts ahead. Eric protests, Sir John stammers as he keeps to his idea, and now doubts are really starting to seep in. And as Sir John ponders his quandary, Venger appears behind him, and he insists Sir John leads them to the Beholder and then abandon them. That's too cowardly even for Sir John, despite his fear of Venger. But the big bad has an ace up his cloak, revealing he's got John's son Tim hostage and surrounded by beasties. And any parent will tell you, you'll do anything to save your kid. Yeah. And then this is where I kind of question the whole, is he a coward for doing this or is he brave? Because he's trying to save his son. And if he really was a coward, he would run and, and abandon his kid. So he is kind of brave to do this to save his son because he loves his son. Back with the party, Eric is expressing his doubts to the others. And oh boy, here we go. Sir John shows up trying to be resolute, and the other kids show their displeasure with Eric. But in a valley, Sir John makes an escape and Eric calls him out on it. And as Diana and Bobby protest his excuses by saying they thought he was brave, Sir John dejectedly shambles off with a sad, Yes, uh, I know. And he bravely ran away, away. Sir John, Sir John, he bravely away. Sir John, Sir John. And as the kids deride Sir John, the beholder strikes. Eye lasers everywhere. Just eye lasers. And some roaring. Looking at what time is left of the episode, I sadly understand why the myriad powers of the beholder's various eye stalks probably landed on the cutting room floor. Although that would be totally cool to see. Yeah. As for the roaring, I checked with some friends of the podcast, namely Brenda and Bill Thorpe, and Christopher Frank, who are, in addition to Chrissy, are also uh, very well versed in Dungeons and Dragons. But since Chrissy was doing all this other research, it was only fair to rope my other friends into this. Mm -hmm. So according to the Monster Manual, circa 1979, they can speak their own language, beholders, as well as that tongue known to lawful evil creatures. So yes, they're capable of speech. Just maybe not common speech, depending on the beholder. 
I also probably think having it roar the way it did is probably a smart move because if you suddenly had it speaking tongues, considering what was going on in the culture at the time, could you imagine that gift handing that to evangelicals if suddenly you have a creature on there speaking tongues? More than fair. Also, I'm 100% sure that roar is uh, is literally Frank Welker in a tr- garbage can. Oh, I'm pretty sure, too, and I'm pretty sure he had fun doing that. Worked for the Lion King. Yep. Yep. Now, the kids panic, hide behind a rock, and Hank tells them not to panic. Wow. Great leadership, Ogen Eric One. I love how Eric calls him out on that, too, where he's like, you're saying that now? Like, Eric actually says, really? That's what you have to say? Like, not panic? That's your plan? Back with Sir John. He's sitting ashamed, and Venger twists the knife as he calmly savors the fact that the party's magic weapons will finally be his. Oh, yeah. Uh, let me tell you Venger's stats real quick, because I think this is going to explain why Venger does what he does. So Venger's stats, according to Gary Gygus, his strength is 17, his intelligence is 18, his wisdom is 7, his dexterity is 17, his con is 17, his and his charisma is 16. Oh. So that explains what he does next quite well. Like, he's good at thinking up the plans, but the fact he leaves before collecting the weapons, which is not a wise move, <laughs> he has a 7. Yeah. He's not exactly very wise. Still, Venger does keep his word, freeing Sir John's son, but he can't help but give a parting shot telling the knight that the kid is nothing like him. And sure enough, after the big bad flies off, the cries for help of the party are heard, and the knight's son charges in, with Sir John yet again racing to catch up with someone else. Hey, I'm going to give some props to Venger. He actually went through with his uh, promise. I mean, how many times do you see villains back out on their promises, or well, I think just straight up lie? Well, I think it's because Venger is technically considered lawful evil, so he does follow his own code. Yeah, I know. It's just a million other cartoons would have said, oh yeah, I'll give your son a back but i didn't say he'd be alive or some something like yeah. that but no but venger's just like yeah no here you go you did what i asked there you go here's your kid but yeah like chrissy said this is an evil mastermind faux pas he should not have left before collecting the weapons he only has himself to blame now like i said his wisdom is a seven i mean he's intelligent enough to come up with the plan he's just dumb enough not to actually collect the weapons so you're smart enough to be like i have this great plan but the wisdom is the is the actual like hey i should probably do this thing and actually collect those weapons now that they're on the floor granted is also probably smart enough to wait until after the beholder is done eating them and leaving because he's probably like yeah i'm not messing with a beholder are you crazy so speaking of that beholder we now get to see a second power a telekinetic entangling ray as the group is basically helpless, with Presto unable to reach his hat for a last-minute gasp at freeing themselves. Sir John and Timothy reach them, and John charges only to get restrained too. And finally, Hank remembers the other bit of Dungeon Master's advice about beauty and the Beholder, and Diana remembers the flower she gave Sir John. The purple flower horrifies the Beholder into melting away, and a portal back to the amusement park opens behind its corpse. Wow. Corpse in a Saturday morning cartoon in the early 80s. Surprise. I don't know if so much of the purple flower horrifies the beholder or if the beholder is allergic to it. The kids hurry as Timothy celebrates his father's brave deed 
but Bobby asks about Uni. Hank says he has to remain behind, and Venger finally shows up a little late to assault Sir John. And there's that thump sound we heard last on the podcast as Megatron's fusion cannon as Venger's attacks get fierce, with Sir John only defending with that garbage can lid. Thump. Thump is what I always think of that sound. Who would like to hear that sound again from last podcast? <laughs> the party decides to abandon escape to save Sir John and Timothy, repelling Venger with their various weapons. Even Eric, whose better nature overtakes his desires for expensive amusement park hamburgers. And to Eric's credit, he does jump right in front of them to deflect Venger's blast, so props to Eric. Yep. Yeah. The deflection stuns Venger for the final attack to send him blasting off again. I love the I love the fact that Eric goes, What the hell am I thinking? as he jumps out of the tunnel and back into the fray. You know, it is a legitimate thing to think of. Now the valley is restored in a hurry as the party praises Sir John, and Diana says, Some of us thought you were scared while looking at Eric which isn't at all that fair considering the circumstances. I agree. Yeah, and which Eric even has to say, well, I guess I was wrong. And it's like, actually, no, you weren't. You were right this entire freaking time. I know. You know, it's like, hey, we get that you were terrified, but good job. Like, acknowledge the fact the guy was freaking, was flipping scared, but he, you know, he did good. Like, don't play it off that he didn't, like, lead you guys into a death trap. Also, I'd like to say, as a DM, um, one of the things that actually does happen after a Beholder dies is the rot does actually magically go away in their area that they are. So I'm like the, I also like they have that accuracy in this, too, of what happens when a Beholder dies. Nice. So Eric scares himself by sitting on the horn Presto summoned in the last fight, and everyone laughs at his expense, including Dungeon Master, who I suspect is implied to have delivered the last shot in that battle. Most likely. Most, yeah. Which means potentially the Dungeon Master would have saved them anyways, but yeah. So, as a postscript for this episode, what of the Beholder being terrified of a flower to the point of death? It's not canonical to D&D lore that a mere flower would be fatal, but in the modern version, at least... Beholders are notoriously paranoid creatures whose obsessions and fears can be downright illogical to most sapient races. So one being terrified of a lilac or tulip isn't out of the question. No. And then it, and that does carry over from advanced D&D too. So I mean it wouldn't not be wouldn't be out of it to have a beholder that maybe is terrified of beautiful things considering how much rot and decay they brought to the valley. So having a pretty flower suddenly showing up would terrify the heck out of it. But, I, yeah, like I said, it was hard to say if it was ter Like, when I was watching, I'm like, is it terrified or is it allergic? Like, because allergies can be deadly, too. You know, I just have one thing to say about that. Yeah. Flower power. <laughs> there we go. I'm going to go take some allergy medicine while we take a commercial break. Back soon. <laughs> we'll be right back to Dungeons and Dragons on Genix. On the next Pemmy and James podcast, in the mid-1980s, Hulkamania was running wild, brother! And it soon ran on to Saturday morning, courtesy of Deke, 
The resulting show was loaded with animation errors, exaggerations of characters who were already exaggerated ethnic stereotypes, and early voice acting appearances from the likes of Brad Garrett, Charles Adler, and James Avery. Contact your pay-per-view provider for details on this podcast, airing in two weeks. Now, back to Dungeons & Dragons on ShedEx. Welcome back, folks, and it's time to review Episode 9 of the series, Quest of the Skeleton Warrior, the lone writing credit from frequent Marvel and Sunbow writer Buzz Dixon, perhaps best known as the writer behind the G.I. Joe movie. Oof, that thing gave me nightmares. You know, I have more consistent experience with G.I. Joe than I had with Transformers, given that it was re that the Sunbow era was reran on the USA Cartoon Express during the 90s, and then Toonami got their hands on it for their midnight run, and so mm-hmm. on. And I just had a more maintained relationship with G.I. Joe than I did with Transformers for whatever reason. Well, the thing is, Transformers actually was when they did the reruns of Transformers, they put it on sci-fi. I remember that. But to my point, I know a Buzz Dixon episode when I see one, and by God, this is a Buzz Dixon episode. His fingerprints are all over this. I was once a man. Sorry. <laughs> even that? Back. Yeah, with, De- <laughs> with Decan, even that, that, that is a cliche in this. So, our episode opens on a dark and stormy, uh, indeterminate time of day, since it's too light out to be night for all I can tell. And Venger flies through a mountain range to meet an apparent servant of his, Dekion, who claims to have finally found the Circle of Power. Dekion, it should be mentioned, is an armored skeleton. He's a skeleton warrior. Skeleton warriors! Warriors! Unite! That would be an awesome cartoon. Skeleton warriors was a cartoon. Oh, what? I must add this to my list of things to watch now. Dekion points to the Lost Tower of the Celestial Knights, which he claims to be beyond their reach since only those pure of heart, and this could qualify to be a Celestial Knight, can enter and have any hope of passing the test of courage. Dekion especially can't so long as he's still under Venger's spell. But the Big Bad knows six candidates who could get in. I just want to pause on that for a second, because Venger says he he knows six kids who are... Pure of heart. Is Eric really pure of heart? <laughs> In this episode, he's pure canola oil. <laughs> I mean, ways... I'll defend Eric on a lot of stuff, but pure of heart? Seriously, this this guy is like shipwreck distilled to his worst characteristics in this episode. Shipwreck's my favorite Joe. <laughs> Again, this is very much Buzz Dixon's work. As much as we like to hate on Eric, I think he's, he remember, he is a spoiled, he, he is a spoiled kid, but at the same time, when the chips are down for the other kids in this episode, when the, whenever the, uh, his friends are in trouble, he does step up. He, he does do the right thing when it's a hundred percent necessary. Yeah. And to his credit, Eric is one of the characters I would like to have a figure of if they end up continuing with the cartoon figures. So this, of course, leads us to the party, dealing with a rickety rope bridge over a canyon in a storm. Eric complains, of course, and he's about to make a proper bolt forward when Dungeon Master shows up right in front of him with news. Of course he does. Yep. He tells them of the tower, and that they have to defeat the enemy within themselves, and vanishes just as Eric figures. 
It should mention the storm paused while he was there, and it resumed with a vengeance once Dungeon Master popped out, taking out the bridge. He took it to the bridge. I will have to say, at least this time, Dungeon Master did not pop up behind Eric this time. No, but still surprised him. Yep. Where's Bobby Bird when we need him? But I think I'll take him to the bridge. 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 All right, if I take him, yo. Take him to the bridge. Yeah, one time. So Eric climbs over the entire group just to get up to the top first, then gets annoyed the others aren't up yet. Yeah, he kind of deserves what he finds at the top, though. Yeah. He he definitely took his jerk pills today. He, He drank the jerk juice. Dekion is right behind him and places a hand on Eric's shoulder. Karma comes quick. And the skeletal warrior repels their attacks with ease and gets the kids to stop by telling them he simply wants to talk. Got a terrible way of showing that. (laughs) Yeah. Though I I do want to point out that uh, Sheila takes his sword and yet briefly he still has his sword. But don't. Oops. Animation error. Animation error. Once they're properly parlaying, Dekian claims he was once one of the Celestial Knights, and an evil wizard turned him into the cadaverous crusader the kids see before them. Dekian petitions them for help reclaiming the Circle of Power in the same Lost Tower the Dungeon Master told them about, and Hank accepts, despite Eric's reservations. Once there, Bobby smashes the lock so they can get in, and they walk into the TARDIS! (laughs) Seriously, Sheila even says it's bigger inside than it is outside, she should have been a companion at minimum. <laughs> I, I do like Sheila in this up. Ep- I do enjoy she- Sheila in this episode. With Dekion waiting in the east, the game session for the evening begins in earnest. Roll initiative. A gargoyle's eyes glow red as Presto observes that he feels someone is looking inside his brain. And Eric snarks, that shouldn't take long. Good grief, this is the most unlikable I've seen this character so far. Gotta have someone spouting the snark. Don't worry, he gets his. Yeah, I, I, I just hope this my own snark doesn't make me the Eric of the group. Nah. No, your actually your snark actually make your your snark is not vicious. Your snark is like, okay, wait just a minute. Sheila almost notices more glowing eyes as one gargoyle reaches for her cape, and once she's freed, she plummets down a trap in the floor. Bobby chases after, but the hole seals up. And, boy, you can really feel Bobby's panic. Well, I love the fact that, and it's throughout the whole series, how much they emphasize uh, the relationship between Bobby and Sheila. Like, that sibling relation and how much they watch out for each other. And you can tell the family resemblance by the freckles. Mm -hmm. And, yeah, Bobby is literally, like, tearing up, too. Yeah. So once the young thief regains consciousness, she's alone in a cold, wintry plain and she says she's scared of being alone, which is a rather on-the-nose identifier of what she has to face. Meanwhile, clearly somebody never told Hank that you never split the party! Yeah, rule one in D&D, folks, never split the party. Obviously, Hank's watched one too many episodes of Scooby-Doo. <laughs> this is fair. Because with Sheila already missing, he goes off on his own and gets sealed into the room he was investigating. Diana yells for the others, and Presto attempts a spell only for him and Eric to be sent to some swamp. Yeah, but Eric is like, why did they grow a tree in the middle of the tower? No, I think 
the tree's in the right spot. <laughs> like, <laughs> Presto's just like, no, I think the tree's in the right spot. We're in some forest. And they get attacked by hags, which I thought was actually a really cool touch that they actually put in um, swamp hags. I was waiting for ogres, personally. What are you doing in my swamp? <laughs> that would have been awesome, but I don't think anyone was thinking of Shrek at the time. Right. <laughs> Back with Hank, he gives up on breaking down the wall with his magic arrows and sets off to find another way back to his friends, as the stairs he takes vanish, leaving behind the inky void of space, which he now has to outrun. Back in the swamp, Eric is not giving Presto's apologies much consideration as he berates him for being a nerd. Oh, for goodness sakes, the six of you are playing Dungeons and Dragons, Pot Kettle Black. <laughs> I, I do have to say the whole like if the, the whole like if I knew people were going to laugh at me I wouldn't get up in the morning line was like damn man also I wonder if Don Most felt a twinge of role reversal considering his Happy Days characters early interactions with the Fonz <laughs> yeah probably yeah, I'm sure he enjoyed doing this more than that Happy Days cartoon for Hanna-Barbera oh I'm pretty sure he did now as Eric says what uh, Pemmy said a moment ago that he wouldn't leave the house if he knew he was going to be laughed at, a bedsheet covers him and changes his face to a pointy-eared, long-nosed, dopey-voiced, well, nerd. Or, you know, somebody that went to Pleasure Island too long in Pinocchio. I was just thinking that. I was just thinking that. And here come the hags, who swipe Presto's hat and glasses, blinding him and leaving him pretty much helpless. The ghoulish gals laugh and assault the duo in a frankly, nightmarish fashion. I want to also point out just real quickly is that everything that's happening to them was foreshadowed on the bri- on the bridge, too. If you really actually listen to their conversation on the bridge of what everyone is scared of, they talk about this. Presto lost his glass. Yeah, Presto almost lost his glasses on the bridge. And he was scared. He was like, oh my god, I'm, I'm helpless without my glasses. I can't see anything without my glasses. Uh, Eric talked about his looks. Uh, I think Diana made a comment about her um, abilities and losing her abilities. Bobby was upset because everyone thinks he's so young. Sheila talked about being alone. And, if, and Hank about his inability to lead. So we're seeing it was a nice foreshadowing they did. Also, I can relate to Presto because when I lose my glasses, I freak out too because I can't see jackedly crap. I think them. Presto's fear is very rational for anyone who has who has thick glasses. Like you're blind as a bat. <laughs> Presto is the resident Velma. <laughs> confirmed. It is confirmed. He is Velma in this. I'm not sure I want to see him in a turtleneck sweater and uh, a short skirt. <laughs> Don't tempt me to draw it. <laughs> Something tells me eventually we're going to see that on Pemmy's Pemmy's Discord. It wouldn't leave me alone. (laughs) So back from commercial, Diana, Bobby, and Uni walk into a crystalline area of the tower that surrounds them with mirror images of themselves. And Uni walks by one mirror which doesn't show his reflection. And as she stops to inspect it, a horrifying face scares the poor thing. She grabs the remaining party members who inspect the mirror, and their fears are revealed. Like Chrissy said, Bobby doesn't want to be perceived as a baby, and Diana fears being old and frail and losing her abilities. Yeah. So, could you identify these monsters, Chrissy? So, these ones here, from what I can see of them, they they look a lot like ghouls, like 
are um, ghouls or zombies. It, they're hard because the, how they're drawn, you can't actually see detailic, the details on them. So I think, honestly, all the characters that are showing up in this episode are from the Ravenloft supplement of the game. That's pretty much where I had to actually start to look for some of these characters. I want to say these ones here are actual like nightmare ghouls. Okay. Um, and I'm sure their stats are found either in Ra- the Ravenloft supplement of AD&D or um, Shadowfowl, which is the Shadow Realm. Either way, so. the monsters behind the mirrors do reveal themselves and surround the three of them. I, I gotta say, uh, the imagery of Diana becoming extremely old and Bobby turning into a baby is very, very disturbing, kind of, for a kid's TV show in the early 80s. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hank's race against the Void, meanwhile, leads him to a brick wall. He inevitably falls and lands right in the Circle of Power's chamber. But as he's reaching for it, he hears his friend's agony and finds their current situations via a crystal ball. And there, sure enough, is his real fear that he's a poor leader and led his friends to their dooms. When he speaks to that problem, it clicks. He has to confront his fear as Dungeon Master implied. His words reach the others through the crystal ball, and knowing that it's all in their heads, one by one, they overcome their fears. Except I don't think Eric learned much. He he at least wasn't scared anymore, so... And and to the credit, I I want to give props to Hanks because he Hank in this scene because this this is a real good character moment for him because he really confronts this and is really gets upset about it before he realizes what's going on. Yeah, like this is this is the point where he really where you kind of see him come out emerge a little bit more than just the pretty boy generic leader. Like he actually goes, I he really confronts that his fears about himself as the generic leader. And he really, because he has the choice where he could just grab the ring of power or he could focus on his friends. And he really actually goes right to helping his friends, like once he realizes it. Once they're assembled, Hank grabs the circle and Eric points out that they don't know Dekion will give it back to them so they can go home. Eric is, once again, right. At the ruins to the east where Dekion was, was going to meet them, Hank is about to hand it over when Dungeon Master intervenes and is almost struck down by Dekion. The Dungeon Master finally stops playing with riddles, and tells the kids the straight truth about the Bonehead. Dekion betrayed the Celestial Knights by leading them into a trap in return for power, and the result is as plain as the lack of a nose on Dekion's face. He got power, but it's at the fate of being a skeleton skeleton warrior! Sorry. Evil deeds always come full circle, says the Dungeon Master, and won't stop until the circle is broken. Now, before the group can reach a real decision, the Dungeon Master vanishes again, and Venger swoops in to attack and claim the circle for himself. Dekion begs to be finally released, but since he himself didn't get the circle, Venger has no intention of freeing him, instead opting to give him some skeletal company in the form of the heroic party. There's that lawful evil again. Also, he, dick moment on Venger's part, but you know. But he, but technically, according to his alignment, he's within his rights because he did tell Dekion he had to get it, not the kids. Yep. Now Hank is about to melt to death. Oh my god! Yeah. This, this, yeah. 
I will give them this one. This was a little horrifying. I, I also, I imagine like Sensor stepped in on that because something tells me that probably was originally going to look a lot worse. I agree. Madekian strikes back at Venger and gets Hank to safety. And as Dekian tries to fight back, the party has to figure out how to assist him. And Presto realizes the circle of power itself needs to be broken to end Dekian's curse. I'm going to give props to Presto in this scene. He took a big risk to get that. Like, he was doing a lot of the superhero jumping behind rocks and stuff, which is not something you really expect from him. Or any wizard. Yeah. Yeah, they're squishy. Especially considering, you know, Eric has the shield and all, but, you know... (laughs) So with a skeet shooting assist from Hank, the circle is literally broken. Venger is cast away. Dekian's humanity is restored as his griffin mount arrives again. And the kids have to continue their search for a way home. I thought it was a warbird or something, not an actual griffin. They call it a warbird, but let's be honest. Yeah, it could go either way. But yeah, he... um. He does say he would, he'll help try to find a way for them to get home. And of course, Eric goes, we'll never hear from him again. And I'm like, the line of every guy in a bar. <laughs> well, also, as far as cartoons of this type usually goes, Eric's probably right. I know. That's the thing is, is like as much as they still had their way where Eric is probably like, I, I have to say they're like, Eric is right most of the time. And it's like, you know, he is right. Like every time that he says something, it's like, no, Eric is right. It's just they paint him as being wrong or no one believes him. He's kind of the Cassandra of the group where no one believes him (laughs) when he says something. They're like, he says it and they're like, no, that's not right. And he's just like, son of a does no one listen to me? But I mean, that's not, and when I say that, that's not a bash on Dekian. I'm sure Dekian probably is trying to find, Dekian is probably trying to find their, find the home. But I mean, I know how these cartoons usually do. And it's usually like, once you've seen that character, you never see him again. So again, yeah. Eric's probably right. Even if yeah. it wasn't Dekion's intention. Yeah. And being a celestial knight, I mean, he probably did go, I mean, he did betray his, his people. So I am pretty sure when he got home, there was some, yeah, he probably had to face some consequences. So I'm sure it would take him a while. So gang, it's almost 40 years later now. Mm-hmm. Does Dungeons and Dragons still work? Yeah. I say, yeah. I think it holds up surprisingly really well. Uh, the animation in the second episode was r- way better than the first one. I also want to throw that out. It looks really nice, even for being like, what, 40 years old? I'm going to be honest. Like, it holds up so well that, I mean, look at now. Like, here we are 40 years later, and. You're going to be releasing, if they have not, they will be releasing in a few weeks, a mini comic arc, Continue the Adventure of These Kids. Um, in 2000, and I think it was 2005, Gary, um, one of the writers, actually released the, the script for the unreleased final episode, Requiem. Someone and we will actually, get there. Yeah. <laughs> and someone actually turned that, actually took, requiem and actually turned it into a comic book online so people could read the final episode of what happens to these kids you know as pemi said they made they're making um action figures of these kids now 
And it's actually a hit. People are anticipating this stuff. So, yeah, I think this cartoon still holds up to today. And it has wonderful messages in it. Facing your fears. There are the theme of these two episodes, working together. One of my favorite episodes, which we didn't do, is The Servant of Evil, where they actually showing kindness to someone and not judging someone for what they do, but learning their story and showing them kindness will get you um, a lot further than just straight up fighting a lot of their problems are not solved with violence it's actually solved with problem solving and i think that's a great message in this cartoon and i'm i'm still going to just say i give them props for doing this cartoon at all considering again the aforementioned satanic panic at the time right oh yeah now despite the moaning railings of the various critics of the show dungeons and dragons was a massive hit holding the number one spot in its time slot for the first two of its three seasons on CBS. In 1983, this was at 9.30 a.m., opposite Pac-Man on ABC, and the second half hour of the one-and-a-half-hour block that the Smurfs had mutated into on NBC. Competing against the single largest Saturday morning franchise of the early 80s and the animated adaptation of the hottest video game property of that medium's golden age, and winning! is no small thing. Yeah. Now, going into 1984, it had moved to 11 a.m. before going back to 9.30 around the winter of 85. Then for its final season, it would settle into an 11.30 time slot as ratings began to decline. I will state that's probably when the parents were getting up and taking back over the TV set. Mm. That's what my dad did. (laughs) Now, it was for the 84 and 85 season that Tanya Gale Smith was nominated for the Youth and Film Awards in the category Outstanding Young Actress in an Animation Voiceover. The award would ultimately go to... Oh, fudge, Wikipedia has conflicting reports. But the award's website listed as Ginny Holtzman for the Charlie Brown and Snoopy show's Peppermint Patty. So I'm going with that one. That's a good one to go with. Yep. Yeah, I would also say that the... Target audience for Dungeons and Dragons and the target target audience for Smurfs are two different age groups. I mean, Smurfs is definitely a much younger demographic, where Dungeons and Dragons would be in much older demographics. Like I would say, Dungeons and Dragons would definitely be more for probably about eight to you know eight and up, where Smurfs would be younger than that. So, the demographics are different for what this cartoon would show would be aged would be aimed towards like this is not something you would show us a four or five-year-old right now the show was canceled before the third season's final episode could enter production chrissy already identified it as requiem and it would have concluded the story arc of the first three seasons and provided a retooled premise for the potential fourth dvd distributor bci eclipse would take the script for that episode and produce effectively a radio drama for their release of the entire 27-episode series, even bringing back Frank Welker and Katie Lee to reprise Uni and Sheila, respectively. Mm-hmm. It's um, really I re- good. I actually haven't heard that. Now I now I need to. <laughs> yeah. And like I said, someone um, someone actually did turn it into a webcomic, and it's a really good webcomic. And it, it tells you exactly who uh, Venger is. Yeah, isn't he like uh, Dungeon Master's apprentice or son or something can i can i give it away would it be considered a spoiler it, the show's so old unless pemmy has an objection i say go for it go for it and he is actually dungeons master's son and in requiem the kids actually 
Eric actually makes a very selfless decision and restores Venger to his previous form. Neat. So following its three seasons, Dungeons and Dragons would return to the airwaves on the second year of the syndicated package dubbed Marvel Action Universe, which I don't think we got in Rochester. In fact, I'm pretty sure we didn't. I don't think they got it in in um, in the Eastern Seaboard. Uh, I think New York City got it. Yeah, we it's... got uh, we got a version of that in Ardmore, Oklahoma, but it was uh, it it didn't have Dungeons and Dragons with it. It was instead like uh, Spider Man is amazing friends, Dino Riders, and uh, RoboCop. Right. Well, it is New York City. That's a whole new universe. That's a whole different universe as far as I'm concerned. It would then return on Toon Disney's Jetix block at points between 2006 to 2008. In fact, it's Disney who owns the rights to this cartoon, having inherited Marvel's old animation properties that weren't, at the time, tied to Hasbro when they purchased, when they, Disney, purchased Marvel Comics and their various assets. Apparently, TSR didn't negotiate any true rights to the cartoon like Hasbro would for G.I. Joe, Transformers, My Little Pony, Gem and the Holograms, and the other bits and bobs Marvel and Sunbow produced for them. And Hasbro never really pursued the Dungeons and Dragons cartoon when they purchased Wizards of the Coast, who had previously bought TSR. As I stated before in my pop culture disassembly videos on YouTube, Hasbro has been in the buying up intellectual property game well before Disney ever was. Till all are one. <laughs> well, and then I think the thing is, is with Wizard of the Coast was... When Wizard of Coast bought TSR, they were more interested in the, the franchise of the books and the game than they were in the cartoon. Because they probably consider the cartoon as something that they weren't in, they weren't interested in it. They, to them, it was it was a cartoon property. We're not into that media at the time. They weren't into TV, movies, or anything like that. So to them, it was like, we're not really interested in that. And Marvel has it. We're not, that's not our thing. Y'all can keep it. And it may have been too much for Wizard of the Coast to buy at the time. Still, via Hasbro's good relationship with Disney, we finally got the first toys truly based on this cartoon just last year. Yay! Yay! And I have Diana, currently. And, um, yeah. And then, also, like I said, coming up in probably, I think, the month or two, they announced it back in December. And if I thought, oh, it's coming out soon, but it's actually coming out this spring, is the, it's a six issues mini series of the kids' continued adventures in the, the realm. And because where Dungeons, where Requiem ends, is the kids have a decision where they can go back home or they can stay in the realm and continue fighting the evil that is there. Because technically, it wasn't just about Venger. It's about an actual evil force in the realm corrupting the realm. Venger was just one part of it. Um, I do want to say one other thing about the production of this show. Uh, seemingly one of the other things uh, Mark Evaner complained about was uh, due to the censorship rules and stuff they everything had to be like a beam weapon instead of an actual you know legit DD weapon but i'm actually okay with that because i actually think that actually adds to the fantasy element of the show yeah I sure too. come on hank's bow and arrow looks way cooler with these like freaking lightning arrows than it would have looked with uh 
with like you know normal arrows well and i think also the thing too is to make a difference between the kids magical weapons and regular weapons because i think they show i think there's care i think in other episodes there are characters with regular bows and arrows and they look so different so to have the lightning weapons is nice because you can tell the difference between their weapons and regular weapons in this world uh pemi yep while we were discussing this Someone got into our pantry and replaced all of my cornflakes with iron rations. You know what that means. Oscar! Bed dog! It's time to restock the breakfast cereal. I have my BJ's card! Yay! Thanks for tuning in, folks, and we will see you next time. Bye, everyone! The preceding podcast is a co-production of the Mighty Monkey Corporation and Artificial Orange Studios. The theme song is written, composed, and performed by Shawn Michael Smith.